Welcome to episode 79 of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This time around, we are looking at Season 3, Episode 23, Wet Wired. Original air date, May 10th, 1996. The action primarily takes place in Maryland. When I originally collated the IMDb scores for all episodes prior to recording these podcasts, it was 8.3 out of 10. It has since risen to 8.5 out of 10. The director is Rob Bowman. And the writer is visual effects supervisor Matt Beck. This is his only writing credit, much like Smallville boasts his only director credit. He is primarily a visual effects guy, but his visual effects resume is very impressive, including multiple Emmy and Oscar nominations. The basic idea behind this story is that people are being subjected to subliminal imaging in their TV sets in a little Maryland town and end up killing each other because of what they think they see. As Mulder and Scully are investigating, they notice that a couple of these seemingly unrelated killers have drawers and drawers full of VHS tapes, so they start watching them, and Scully ends up susceptible to the effect, believing that Mulder is conspiring against her. Mulder himself appears to be immune, and the lone gunman concludes it's because he's red-green colorblind, and this is also the first of six times in the course of the series that we're going to hear the name John Gilnitz which is a combination of John Scheiben, Vince Gilligan, and Frank Spotnitz. Ultimately, both the Cigarette Smoking Man and X appear, although Mulder was originally tipped off by a new informant, so he was a little bit slow to follow the clues because there was no trust developed. In the end, the CSM and X are both discussing the situation, and X reports that Mulder's informant has been killed, but his informant's source has yet to be identified. Now, Stephen Williams reported that he really liked that scene because you can't tell who's subordinate to whom by the dialogue. I think that the emotional investment of the audience to date really demands that CSM, or the Cigarette Smoking Man, the Cancer Man, be superior to X, and that X is reporting to him. Although I get why, as the actor, in a show that tries to keep you on edge and keep you guessing, that would be an important element. So... If I were in Stephen Williams' place and I noticed that ambiguity, I would probably try to play it as though the Cancer Man is X's subordinate, unless told otherwise. And we've got a lot of recognizable guest actors here. They don't seem to have any particularly notable work. So we're going to move into a new feature of the show. Now, I talked about how, as of Season 4, we're going to be condensing the podcast so that once a month we discuss four episodes. I've decided not to do that. The reason I was doing that was to get through it, because I committed to finishing it, but I'm finding that even though I love the show and still enjoy watching it, there's not as much for me to talk about in a single-voice podcast as I expected. And going through every single episode rather than just picking and choosing highlights doesn't inspire me the way that I was expecting it to. And the first season has so much of the show's DNA that set it apart from its contemporary series and even many modern series 20 years later just meant I kind of went through all that in the first season, and now I'd be relegated to making the same comments in about 200 episodes. So, I said I'm going to finish the series, and I am, and I want to find something that sets it apart, something that I know I'm bringing to the table that all the other X-Files podcasts out there are probably not doing. I say probably because I've deliberately chosen not to listen to them to make sure I'm doing my own thing. So, starting with this week's episode, we're going to add a new feature that's going to take a little more prep time, so we're going to keep with the bi-weekly episodes. But I'm going to evaluate the science behind what they encounter in every episode. My own background includes two physics degrees, so I may get things a little bit wrong on the biology or chemistry sides, but there's a lot of physics going on in here, and I will promise to do my best to research the rest. So this week's sort of buy-in or the sci-fi element comes in subliminal messages. 
from what I've been able to dig up online, subliminal messages work in principle, but they work a lot like hypnosis. So they're not mind control. We can't just, you know, subliminally tell someone to perform a specific action. You can only nudge someone to take actions or make decisions that they were going to make anyway. So we're able to make them a little bit sooner or a little bit easier, but you can't make them do something that wasn't already within the realm of possibility. So on that end, it kind of works because, you know, Scully has been in these situations. It's very possible that she would draw her gun and fire if she felt that her life was in jeopardy. We don't know if enough about these other characters, but it's possible that, yeah, they would have killed under those circumstances. And that's really what we're getting at here. The question, though, is about the delivery of these particular subliminal messages. So with a cable trap, that's a device that has been used to control whether or not you can get certain pay channels. So it's a box you could put on where if you don't pay for HBO, you're not going to get HBO. You know, this is before the days where you can get your parents HBO, go username and password. So that's kind of what it is. They could, in theory, use a cable trap that would insert some additional frames into a TV signal. It would have to be a lot more than a normal cable trap, but the lone gunman basically say it is. It's adding this data somehow. The issue is that the TV itself it's being shown on would still run under the standard 30 frames per second. So when the lone gunman say that this frame flashes 15 times per second, it would mean that this signal would be half of the frames. So they'd be visible because your brain couldn't tell the preferential difference between the so-called subliminal image and the intended image. They'd sort of both be faded out and superimposed over each other like a double exposed photograph. Even if it was just one frame out of 30, it would be spotted without a lot of difficulty. I used to work as a projectionist about 20 years ago in a theater that was obviously still using film. This was, as I said, 20 years ago. And it didn't take long before I was able to start spawning scratches and dirt on single frames of film. The motion effects will fool my brain like anyone else's. So if a character walks across screen, I see someone in motion. But if there's a fleck of dirt on one frame, that fleck of dirt is not a gradual difference. So the persistence of vision doesn't kick in. That frame has something on it that doesn't connect to the previous or subsequent frames. That jumps out, and most people can spot that. When you see dirt on the film, when you see a specific fleck of dirt, that is what you're seeing. So the same would be a problem with the cable trap. If you've only got one subliminal frame per second, that one in 30, a large chunk of the audience are still going to spot it because it doesn't belong there. And this is something that was known to theater owners when they tried putting the subliminal messages of pop and popcorn in the movies to increase sales. Yeah, it did increase sales because some people were susceptible to it, but it stopped almost immediately because a much larger portion of the population watching it saw that the frame was there and knew exactly what was going on and complained, so it stopped. It wasn't fooling the majority of the population. So I think on that end, it doesn't work. On the science end, I would have preferred it if instead of having a cable trap that all the people in town that were susceptible to it had the same make and model television sold in, you know, some sort of fake front store that could be cleaned out and left empty as soon as the investigation got too close. That would allow for a random sample of the population to be exposed. That would allow the TV itself to be able to work at a higher frame rate than usual so that you could slip in these 15 frames per second by showing, you know, say 15 of these, but then putting each of the regular frames of the TV show on, say, four times. So it's a 150 frame per second display and you're getting very quick subliminal imaging. You know, I would have to talk to actual subliminal message researchers to figure out if that's the right proportion, but it would have to be a much faster system in order to make that work. So it would have been a bit of a change in the story, and that's one that surprises me coming from visual effects supervisor Matt Beck, because I would have thought that of anyone, he would have been 
the most familiar with the capabilities of TV and looking at the individual frames, because that would be closer to his part of the job. But generally speaking, yeah, this could work. They would just need a little bit of tweaking. So that's all we have to say about this episode. Feel free to send submissions to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. If you have any questions or comments, I am willing to read them on the air. Those emails are just not really coming in, aside from when people are specifically asked to vote. If you have questions about science from past episodes, that's not going to return. You can fire that in one of those emails to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com, and I will respond to that on the air in a future podcast. And join us again in two weeks when we look at the season three finale, Talitha Kumi. Thank you for listening. Intro and outro music is Outside Pool Side by Laswell, created under the Creative Commons license. All other content is copyright 2016, Bureau 42. Please feel free to send any comments or feedback to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com or leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you for listening.